0: But then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not count against them. Let's pray. Lord, we gather today and we've already been brought into your presence through worship. God, as many of us this week have participated in the Common Life book and have had our focus on the fact that our boast is only in Christ. Lord, we, we look to this passage. God, how I pray that you would teach us what it means that righteousness is credited that we might really be free before the Spirit of God to have you speak into our lives this morning. Lord, mesmerize us again, stun us again with the reality of what it is that Jesus Christ has done, is doing in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably never heard of Dr. Henry Lee unless you are a law student or are a news junkie. Henry Lee has had an incredible impact on some of the most notorious uh, criminal cases in the last 20 years. Henry is a forensic scientist. He uses scientific techniques and observation in criminal court cases, primarily being hired by the defense. He was an expert witness in the O.J. Simpson trial. He argued that, famously argued, that the blood that was found on the socks of O.J. Simpson, which had actually uh, been overlooked and had sat in the lab as they had brought all the stuff in and somebody found them, and uh, he argued that the blood on the socks actually was not blood that would have been applied when somebody was walking in those socks, but rather was socks that would have been, had blood applied if they were lying flat, and he argued, or the defense attorney argued on his evidence that the, the evidence had been tampered with, and it was a major part of the trial. He was uh, brought in as an expert witness in the John Bonnet Uh, Ramsey trial and three or four other famous trials. He was even brought in and around 2000 as an expert witness as they tried to reopen and reevaluate the JFK assassination. If you want an expert witness, Henry Lee is your man. As we come to chapters 1 through 3, Paul has made his great claim about justification, about this this doctrine that literally means being declared righteous and acceptable to God. And Paul has argued in chapter 3 that we are declared righteous by faith alone, sola fide. It is a faith that excludes boasting, and it is a faith that upholds the law, is what he has been arguing in the verses we just read in the end of chapter 3 last week. Now in chapter 4, Paul is calling for expert witnesses. He says it this way in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Let's listen to Abraham's witness. What did Abraham and David discover in this matter of how to be acceptable to God? Now, frankly, this was genius on Paul's part. Paul goes back and he uses the testimony of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham, who was actually the one the whole thing began with, the nation of Israel began with Abraham, where God promised he would bring a people uh, out of him, even though he would would be having the child, well past child-rearing age, he would... Uh, have a nation. He would take them to a, a an appointed, God-given land, and he would bring his blessing upon this people. The whole Israel thing started with Abraham, and then he goes to David, David, the king extraordinaire of Israel. The most famous, the most godly, whose reign reached the zenith of influence and glory in Israel's history. And Paul says, I'm going to bring in uh, uh, expert witness one and expert witness two and see what they say is the basis of people being made acceptable to God. So what does their experience tell us about how to be acceptable to be with God? Will they agree with Paul and his emphasis on sola fide? Or will they rather agree with the the works-oriented Jews of his days, some of which were infiltrating the churches to whom he's writing? And we read five things that they discovered regarding acceptance with God. And the first of those is found in verse 1 and 2. Acceptance with God has always been based on righteousness. He is really talking about the timeless basics of acceptance with God. And he goes back, and now he's foundationally reminding us that the whole thing he's been talking about is this concept called justification or being justified, to declare righteous. Now, I'm really hoping this is a term that we're starting to uh, feel at home with and be really familiar with. Justification is to justify someone, is to declare that they have the validating performance record to open a relationship and to enter in, pass through the door, into a relationship with God. As As I've said before in the last couple of weeks, we have validating performance records all over in life. Uh, we're constantly having these things that give us credential to have open doors. Our resume, our credit rating, our GPA, our SAT scores, our, our report card, are all validating performance records that open doors to us. And Paul has been arguing, what is the validating performance record that opens the door to a relationship with God eternally? What is it that opens the door to heaven to people? What is it that brings people into a right standing and relationship with God? And he has argued from beginning to end that it is righteousness, total righteousness, total doing right, if you will. Now, God established that standard with humankind when he created them. Most theologians believe, uh, most biblical theologians call this the covenant of works that God uh, established with mankind. If they lived faithfully and yielded to God's will fully, they would achieve righteousness. And of course, Adam and Eve, Adam is the the, the figurative head of of human society. Um, Adam, as our representative head, failed miserably. He was no sooner seemingly given the test, uh, and he allowed little time to, to even in paradise before he abysmally uh, flaunted his independence from God and his will and ate the one thing that he was told not to do. He failed the covenant of works, and the result has been described for us in chapters 1 through 3. Paul has been arguing all of the human race has fallen short of the bar for acceptance with God. He gives this tragic summary in Romans 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Now God has not done what you and I would typically do if we were in charge. God hasn't lowered the bar and said, well, we're going to lower the bar then, or, or, or we're, going to, we're, going to make, we're going to start grading on a curve. Still, the standard in, in God's perfection is still total and absolute righteousness. It's still the standard of acceptance. It is still the, the, the validating performance record that is required for someone to have relationship with God and to live with Him forever. The door to heaven is dependent upon that validating performance record. That hasn't changed. But there's a second thing we find as we look at these verses, and that is through the testimony of Abraham, we are told that our performance record, that the the validating performance record of being declared righteous is either merited or it is credited. So let's look at what he says. Here's what he says in in, in these verses beginning with verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul says there's two options of being acceptable to God. There's two options of trying to be righteous and meeting the performance standard. One is you can merit it. You can do it like a, a and, and try to get acceptance based on like wages of an employee. If, if, and if you put that, that uh, slide up, I think I have it there. Do we have merited credit, credit? credit? Yes. Okay, merited, wages of an employee for work you did. That's one option. The other option is it's credited. gift freely credited to you by someone else's work. And he says there's only those two options. So he said, what happened with Abraham? He said, Abraham did not stand in his relationship with God. He was not acceptable with God on the basis of merit. He didn't earn the relationship with God. He didn't earn this standing with God. Genesis 12, 6 rather says that he was credited with righteousness on the basis of his faith. Now, this phrase, was credited, this term credited, this verb, is, is dramatically important. It's the center of this entire passage in Romans chapter 4. As a matter of fact, the word credited here is used 41 times in the New Testament. 11 of them are in Romans chapter 4. It's the whole message of Romans 4 that we have a credited Righteousness, it's an accounting term. It actually is to, to give credit to an individual. And credit is to confer a status that was not there before. That would be a definition of credit. To confer a status that was not there before. Baron and I lead a community group of young marrieds. And on my birthday a number of months ago, um, they gave me a card and in the card um, was a a gift card, and the gift card was one. It was like a Visa gift card that they had deposited some money into an account, and I went to that account and opened it up one time. And not that I didn't believe them, but I. I and there was exactly what they had generously given to us. Now they they the money was there; it had been credited to my account. Now. They didn't say to me when they gave me this really kind gift, they didn't say, you know, Pastor Mark, we've, we've, we've figured out how many community groups you've led this year, and we've taken, you know, based on um, minimum wage, here is our card for you. It was a gift, and it was received as a gift. It was, it was given of love. It was credited to my, and, I, and now I had this, this new bank account where they had credited money. It was credited to my account. It was given totally of, of, of gift, of kindness, of generosity. Paul is saying, Abraham, in verse 3, God credited Abraham's Faith as righteousness. He credited to Abraham something he didn't have. He didn't have righteousness. He was—it was laid to his account on the basis of his belief. Abraham was not righteous. He was not perfect and blameless. He didn't have a validating performance record of always doing the right things. A matter of fact, he was a weasel in the way he, he, he failed to protect his wife on a couple of occasions. But God treated him as though he was. God treated him on the basis of his belief, and we'll look at that in a moment, what that was, as righteous, as fully having a performance that validated acceptance with God. While Here's the key. While unrighteous, he was counted as righteous. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 even says it this way, God is the one who justifies, remember what that means, God is the one who declares righteous, the wicked. When you receive your credited righteousness, he says, you are still wicked, There is still sin. There is still the propensity for sin. There is still the tendency and the orientation. There is still what the Scriptures call the flesh or sinful nature as NIV translated. That that disposition. Now this is the the shocking reality that Paul has been arguing. He says you didn't merit righteousness. You didn't merit acceptance with God. It was credited to you. It was granted to you. And as a matter of fact, That righteousness which Jesus won by living the life you should have lived is credited to you when you are unrighteous. That's why Martin Luther put this famous uh, Latin phrase out there, simul justus et peccator. At the same time, righteous and a sinner. And what Paul is arguing here is that this acceptance with God is not merited. It is credited. It's all of grace. It's gift. And all that Abraham did was by, by belief, trust himself to the reality of that. This, the third thing we find is that verse 5 tells us that this acceptance with God is based on a trust transfer verse 5 says this, Abraham believed God. Now, it's interesting what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Abraham was accepted by believing in God. It doesn't say Abraham was accepted by believing that God existed. Abraham believed God. God. Abraham took God at his word. Abraham entrusted himself to things that God had made known to him. He is the guy in verse 5 who trusts God to be the one who justifies or declares righteous to wicked. That's what Abraham believed. He believed that, that this is what God does. God declares righteous people who are undeserving. God declares and credits, credits to their account righteousness that they have not earned or deserved. Abraham believed God and the righteousness was credited to his account. Abraham believed God when he promised a way to be accepted as righteous. He trusted in God's grace. I want to I process with this with you a little bit because you can have lots and lots of strong faith that God exists You can believe that he is loving, that he is holy. You can believe that the Bible is God's word. You can believe and and show great reverence for God and things of God. Yet all the while, you can be seeking to be your own savior by trusting in your own performance, in religion, in your moral character, in your piety, in your goodness as a human being. To say saving faith is a trust transfer is to think consciously about where your trust is in yourself, or is it completely wholly in God as your Savior? Years ago, uh, Dr. James Kennedy had, had put an evangelistic methodology called evangelism explosion, and he had a question in there that he encouraged you to use as you, and I I used it many times with people, just I still use it at times, basically trying to ascertain more for the individual than for you who are talking, where they were placing their trust. And here was the way he worded the question. He said, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And in response to that question, there are a variety of things that people could answer, and I want to I share a few. And I'm going to ask you just reflect on these for yourself this morning. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? One answer, because I've tried to be a good Christian. That's, a, that's an answer that, that many, many people have. I would guess a number of people that are, are listening to my voice Secondly, some people would say, because I believe in God and try to do His will. Third, some might say, because I believe in God with all my heart. Now, I want to leave all three of those up there just for a minute and show one common reality in all of them. Because I have tried my best to be a good Christian, you are still trusting in your own work to be accepted. I've done my best. I'm trying. It, it is still wanting to merit righteousness and acceptance as opposed to what Paul is talking about here. A second thing is because I believe in God and try to do as well. This is, it, it, it's, it's salvation by faith plus works. But it is not sola fide. It is not faith alone. It is not as Paul describes it in, in Romans 1.17, faith from first to last from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega, it's all faith. It's not that our acceptance with God is partially credited and partially merited, partially a gift, and partially earned. It is totally a gift. It is totally credited. Third, because I believe in God with all my heart, this is making faith into a work. It's also saying it's on the basis of, of my worked-up faith. Now, here's the thing about all these things. In each case, you may be religious, you may be spiritually oriented, you may be a good person, but you are not someone who has transferred your trust from yourself to God's salvation in Christ. Okay, Mark, so you, all right, so you had this trick question, And, 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 all right, so so what should somebody say when they appear before God? And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, this is the only answer I think there is. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? On the basis of my life actions, my thoughts, my words, my righteousness, God, there is no reason you should let me into your heaven. But I have transferred my trust to someone else. I have, by God's grace, made a trust transfer. And I'm not trusting in my getting it right. I'm not trusting in in, in what I've done. It's all in spite of all those things. I have transferred my trust to Christ, the one who lived the life that I couldn't live, that I should have lived, who died the death that I should have died. My trust has been transferred to him. Why let me into my heaven, your heaven? Nothing. In me, everything in Christ. To transfer your trust is to say there is not one speck of reason you should let me into your heaven. That your acceptance of me is totally only founded, that you have credited righteousness to my account because I've transferred my trust. To Christ. So Paul goes on and reminds us of the vital centrality of this trust transfer. And I think this whole reality is is pictured in a beautiful old hymn called Rock of Ages. Listen to these words by the author. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erased. Thou must save, and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Or I die. Why is our boast in Christ? Why does Paul say at the end of chapter 3 there's, there's no place for boasting in being made acceptable to God? There's no place for boasting in, in being declared righteous because it's all about someone else's righteousness. It, it's all about being forgiven for what we bring to the table. It is because there is a trust transfer. That we now have credited righteousness to our account. Just before I move on, I just wanna, I wanna encourage you this morning to really think about that. What are you trusting in in your relationship with God? What are you trusting in in your hope of eternal life? Have you made that? wholehearted, trust transfer. It's what salvation is. It's what being born again is. It's what embracing Christ is. It is transferring our trust wholly from self and fully onto Christ, who lived the life you should have lived, but who also died the death you should have died. The fourth thing that we learn from these expert witnesses is It involves forgiveness for our record. He says this in verses 6 through 8. And basically he's asking the question, all right, I've I've talked about Abraham. So what what did David have to say about how we are accepted with God? Is it merited or credited? And here's what David said, or what he says about David, and then he quotes David. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Here's what David says, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The word count in verse 8 is actually the same word credited. Now, what he does is take the other side of the cross, if you will. I've said this often. Jesus, in in his work for us, did two things for us. We're told that he, uh, that, that his righteousness was credited to our account. We became liable for his righteousness. But the other part is the one that, Paul, that David is talking about. He says, In this transaction of being made acceptable to God, not only did God give us the righteous standing of Christ, but first, what he did was he took our sins, our failure to live righteously. And Jesus died for them. Jesus provide forgiveness for us. So, he became liable for our sins. They were credited to his account, and then his righteousness was credited to our account. And Paul says, David's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing. He's talking this side of the cross, the side that says, we're not called guilty for our sin, Because our sin has been credited to Christ. He died for them. And if by faith we have received Christ as Savior, our sins are no longer credited to our account. They're credited to Christ. And his righteousness is now credited to our account. And he said it all comes about by a faith, a trust, transfer in Christ. So basically he says, what is it to David? Is it married? No, credited credited. The fifth and last thing we see in this passage, and I'm just going to highlight these final verses, this acceptance with God is offered to all who come with faith. In verses 9 through 16, Paul is talking about, you know, uh, Abraham experienced this before he was circumcised. It's, It's not about being a Jew, it's not about being a part of the people of God, it's not about certain works and, or certain cultural uh, or even religious standing that you have. He said, this is for anybody, Jew, Gentile, any people group, any ethnos, all come, all based on a trust transfer from self to God's grace. And then in verses 17 to 25, Paul then gives a, a, a case study. In faith, And I'm just going to highlight this and, and sort of seed this for your further study. But he talks about faith as a concept. And he says three things that are here when he, when he talks about faith. And he says this, when God told Abraham as an old man, and he was 100, actually he was, he, he was younger when he heard it, but it was, when he was 100 it was reiterated to him that God was going to bring out of his loins a a nation. And he would have as many descendants as the stars of the sky, it says. Abraham believed God. And, and, And Paul uses that experience to say, this is the kind of faith I'm talking about. It's wholehearted faith. It's full trust. It's true transfer faith. And he says, this isn't only true in our Christian acceptance into a relationship with God he said this is the way Abraham lived his life this is the way we are to live our lives it is sola fide not only to enter a family of God the family of God but it is how we live in the family of God it is a life of dependence and trust and everything that God is doing in your life this morning all the things that are going on God is doing to help your trust in God grow the greatest evidence of spiritual growth is trust. Always. It isn't devotion. It isn't zeal. It isn't, it isn't, I can use my spiritual gifts better. The greatest example, the greatest expression of spiritual growth is that we trust God more. And so, what are some of the pictures? Well, he gives us three, and I'm just going to highlight them. First of all, in this case study of faith, to believe that reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, but he still believed. And he said, there's no reason to to believe that I could possibly sire children. Secondly, to focus on facts about God. He gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power he says if you want to live the Christian life as a life of trusting in God of transferring your trust in your abilities and you're going to be constantly reminded and some of you this morning are have come in this morning and you're beat up and you're discouraged in most cases it's because you feel your own inadequacy. You're measuring life, but who you are—it happens to us all the time, daily. We're hearing the voices: "You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough." Well, growth in spiritual life and Christian life is that we constantly are, are are transferring our trust less, more and more, from ourselves to Christ, to focus on God, and third, to trust the stated word of God. He believed that God had the power to do what He promised. There's a wonderful message here in the latter part of Romans 4 about how to live the Christian life in these three principles. But I want to go back and take the, 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 the summarizing picture I think that Paul is trying to give us in Romans 4, which is this, the vital importance of making sure that we have made that trust transfer to Christ that Paul has brought out expert witnesses to remind us acceptance with God is not merited. It's never been merited. No one has ever earned their way to a relationship with God. It's credited. It's credited on the basis of faith, and our transfer of faith and trust is to believe that God has the power to do what he promises, that he's ready to forgive you, He is ready to accept Jesus' work for your sins. He is ready to accept you on the basis of what Jesus did for you. Are you ready to transfer your trust fully to Christ? Say, oh my goodness. Maybe for the first time, it's real. I I mean, the reality of this is, I've always thought, yeah, 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 I have faith in God and all that. But, you know, I I thought it was about me. I thought I had to do better. I had to come to church. I had to do this. I had to. But I'm hearing it, that it's not merited. It's credited. It's laid to our account as we trust in the one who has lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. It's all of grace. And because it's all of grace and it's all of Christ, it's sola fide. It's all of faith. It is humbly acknowledging our need and transferring our trust from ourselves into Christ. I don't know where you are today, here in Mount Laurel, here in Collingswood, But I think this passage is a very important one for us to take time to just reflect on. Am I sure that I've transferred my trust to Christ? I'm not talking to you believe in God. I'm not talking to to you, would you say you love God? I'm talking about have you trusted your eternal destiny with Jesus Christ, received Him as your Savior, changed your mind, which is what repentance is, about yourself? and seeing that You bring nothing to this except desperate need. Would You today transfer Your trust to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Let's pray. Lord, You look at our lives and hearts. God, I, I truly believe that even within the doors and walls of churches today, there are many people who are still in need of transferring their trust to Jesus. Lord, it is my prayer, it has been my prayer for this message that the Spirit of God would mercifully, graciously speak into the lives of people Lord, do the work that only you can do. Convince of truth. Convince of need. Draw people to the incredible freedom of entrusting themselves eternally to what Jesus has done for them, both in his life and in his death. Lord, speak to our lives today. Draw us to yourself. I pray. every head bowed and eye closed this morning, no one looking around in this room except myself and one of the leaders there at Collingswood, that they could be praying for you as I'm going to pray here in Mount Laurel. Maybe you're here and, and God has spoken into your life this morning. And maybe there's just come this dawning reality. I need a trust transfer. I need to entrust myself to Jesus Christ as myself. He came for me. He came to die for me. He came to live righteously for me that I could be made acceptable. But I've trusted in me, and today I feel compelled that I need to, and want to trust in Christ. And right now, right here at this moment, Your heart's cry is to say, I want to receive Jesus Christ right now. I want to transfer my trust to Christ. Would you just pray for me? And again, nobody looking around but myself and one other person there in Collingswood. If you're here like that, I'm just going to ask you, and no one looking around, just slip up your hand that I could pray for you personally. As God speaks into your life, just lift up your hand, take it down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh God. We're humbled that you want us. The more we go into the lower levels, the deeper levels in our hearts and lives, the more we are confronted with what we are. And yet, you wanted us to be Your children. Lord, for each hand that's been raised Collingswood and Mount Laurel, God, how I pray that You might draw them to that place of embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, transferring their trust to You. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. I'll go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. And if you did raise your hand, or you did not, and God was speaking to your life, I'd love the opportunity sometime today, another time to just sit with you and, and talk about that and, and uh, think how that can be real in your life and also how you begin to really grow in, in light of that. I'd love the chance to do that. Thank you, everybody.